we ever thought this day would come, but the simple fact is that Modelo is now the number one beer displacing Bud Light in the last uh, four weeks uh, over the course of the past month. Essentially, their their sales uh, finally dipped below. This was something that had been rumored that it was going to happen, but I'm not sure how many people actually believed it was going to happen. It is clearly the most sustained kind of of corporate uh, downfall based on an assumption about a low level assumption about marketing that I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and the, the ramifications are big for a lot of people. The, the, uh, the Wall Street Journal quotes an Anheuser-Busch distributor uh, who doesn't carry Modelo because there are some who carry both. Uh, and his quote is, our year is screwed, <laughs> which kind of tells you how bad this is. Uh, I don't know if either of you are frequent Bud Light uh, drinkers, uh, but what are your thoughts, <laughs> not just on from like the ramifications of this, but the, the fact that this this quote unquote scandal had so much uh, power to it and has so much continued buy-in. Dan, do you have any thoughts? Well, I will say, I mean, so the Modelo thing surprised me just because I didn't know it was number two. It's kind of like, it reminds me of someone told me, I don't know if it's still the case, but someone told me that Subway is the biggest franchise, fast food franchise in the country by like, you know, a factor of three. There are like three times more Subways or there were at the peak than McDonald's. I had no idea. I, just, I had no idea Modelo was sitting right there at number two. I would say of the sort of big three classics, the 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 Coors, the Millers, and the and the Buds, that Bud Light was the worst of those three products. I know people are, you know, you had strong opinions about that. Obviously, they still do, which is sort of the point of the story. But um, to me, Bud Light was always number three on that list. I think just because I always associated it more with um, coming uh, Bud Light on the way back up in a high school high school party or. A, or a college party, maybe. Um, I was a. I, I'm kind of a Coors Light after mowing the lawn on a July day kind of guy. If I'm going to go, <laughs> if I'm going to rock one of the big three. But um, I I cannot pretend I had any idea that this was coming or the magnitude. I don't think anyone can. I'm not sure anyone predicted. Besides maybe the people who are sort of in the business of of perpetually Cassandra style predicting. Um, you know, this one is the one that's going to win us the culture war. And, you know, I think um, someone on another podcast, I can't remember where I heard this, but made the point, too, that, you know, there's something unique about something that you have to hold in your hand and drink with your friends that isn't like, you know, a product, isn't like shopping at Target even or or yeah. something that isn't quite so social in that way. So that's kind of that's all I all I really have to say about it. Well, I, I think that the reason that, you know, in as much as there was a backlash from people that are right of center and that it worked, unlike it doesn't most times, is that, you know, in business terms, the switching cost here is like zero, right? It's not like, you know, you find a new retailer or you have to, you know, switch who your mechanic is or, you know, what whatever it might be. It's, you have to look a shelf over or a shelf down to find something that's probably almost exactly the same or, or maybe better. Um, so so the the bar for action here was, was really low and, you know, these are, these are products that aren't really that differentiated other than through branding and marketing. And I, I think that, you know, what's unfortunate here for, you know, the, the people at, at Anheuser-Busch who had nothing to do with the decision of the, the marketing executive was, you know, they, they suffer for this, but um, you know, it's, look, the, the customers are voting with their feet. And if it happened, you know, with the circumstances in reverse, everyone would say, you know, hail it as, uh, you know, some sort of sign of greater enlightenment enlightenment by customers. I, I think what this all came down to is that the marketing VP, you know, you sort of see the comments she had made on, on various 
podcasts and, and other public forums, you know, that came to light after this whole thing blew up is she hated her customers. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she didn't like sort of the, the you know, I, I don't even know if I would consider Bud Light terribly fratty other than guys in college, you know, drinking it or guys and girls in college drinking it. To me, it felt like very much sort of like the beer of like a Hank Hill, uh, you know, to Dan's point, right. Drinking a Coors Light, you know, after mowing the lawn and she set all of that on fire for nothing. And I just don't see how you're going to reposition sort of a mass market light beer to be, you know, some sort of political statement. So I, I don't really understand the entire thought process behind any of this. Um, I, I tend to think until I'm convinced otherwise that this is going to be kind of a one-off uh, event uh, just again, because it was so easy for people to change behavior. Um, but you know, it, it should probably give folks pause uh, about you know what they're in the business to do. Are they there to to sling beers, or are they there to to make you know political or cultural statements? And you know, this one finally bit them. And yeah, I, know, I, I, we'll I see. think that I think you're right that this may be a one-off just in terms of the scale of it. But I think that part of the reason that might be a one-off is that now literally every marketing executive who's on the higher up, when they bring some kind of proposal that comes up from some minor consultancy to do some kind of branding exercise that they previously would have rubber stamped as, oh, well, they say that the internet will like this. They're going to ask the question, is this going to make us another Bud Light? And yeah, now I'll, they... I'll add an yeah. addendum to that. Sorry to cut you off. But as a guy who, you know, part of my day job, I interface. Th- thankfully, I'm not in one, but I interface with a lot of marketing companies and marketing firms. And I think the most salutary benefit of this whole episode is going to be uh, sort of related to what you just said, which is to say a lot of very lazy marketing companies and ad firms just Google the cause du jour and spin up a couple of lame ideas around whatever the hottest zillennial, you know, Zoomer thing of the minute is and come up with really crappy ideas that don't do anything um, for the products that they're trying to promote. And maybe the most salutary effect of this will be that it will, you know, cost those, those kinds of crappy marketing firms a lot of money. We're, we're a long way away from the days of Ogilvy. That's for sure. Well, uh, gentlemen, uh, this is Thunderdome and we have uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, last time, I feel like we uh, mostly focused on all the different other candidates who were getting into the race over the past week uh but this week is definitely one where the focus has to be on the guy who is at the top and wants to return to the top of the mountaintop and that is donald trump uh his arraignment uh in uh florida turned out to be a little bit less than what the media was promising i feel like the media always gins these things up as there's going to be thousands and thousands of proud boys crowding into the streets you know tearing down buildings you know with their mighty hands and and it always turns out to be something less than that uh, I don't know if you have some takes on uh, on the uh, both the Trump arraignment uh, and uh, the reaction to it. His his uh, follow up, uh, you know, uh, happy birthday celebration where he seemed <laughs> rather somber in the in the Cuban restaurant, um, and and also obviously the speech that he gave uh, in Bedminster. Uh, the one uh, fact toyed that I wanted to inject into the conversation is there does seem to be less of a bounce from this one, at least in terms of uh, polls that have been taken, snap polls since the uh, 
since the indictment was announced, because obviously there was a couple of days of lag there. Um, that is obviously uh, over a weekend, and so there's a lot of other factors there. But there doesn't seem to be the kind of bounce that happened uh, that has happened in the past with uh, with Trump, either you know uh, in uh, if, uh, prior indictments or in the um, uh, the obviously the initial raid of Mar-a-Lago, which set this whole sequence off. Uh, John, do you have any thoughts coming out of the situation in Florida and and what that does to Trump's standing? It's hard to say. It's still early days, but. I think when you when you look at how the other candidates are reacting, and it's it's been by and large limp. If you can imagine basically any other candidate at any other point in time in history, can you can you imagine in two thousand eight uh, if if Hillary Clinton was facing similar circumstances, say from her time in the Senate, uh, that Barack Obama would basically be circling the wagons around her? Uh, it's it's hard to imagine. So I, I think that this you know. I think feel like we're starting to see kind of a redux of, of 2016 where everyone is kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, but no one is actually doing anything to force the issue. Uh, look, with regard to the to the polling numbers being flat, part of the difference is he's you know the president, unlike you know last time with with the the Mar-a-Lago raid, is in a campaign now, and you know you have to imagine that he is. If you don't know how you feel about Donald Trump in the primary at this point. I tend to think that that, you know, whether he's at 55, 54, wherever it is, that that's, I don't want to say a ceiling because I think as, you know, some of these other candidates, as they drop out or if they drop out, that maybe some small amount of that, uh, those voters go to Trump just because they don't like whoever the the not Trump is. Uh, but you, know, you have to think that this is his, 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 his high watermark is this, you know, mid fifties number. And those people are all in. Uh, for now, at least, because it's you know, Donald Trump versus um, you know the media or the the Biden administration or the left or the deep state or you know whoever the other is. Uh, so, and until anybody, until whether it's Ron DeSantis or whoever, Mike Pence really starts to make the case of why this might be disqualifying. Everyone else is just trying to be the the sort of Trump but not Trump instead of saying, "Hey, this guy's going to bring a ton of baggage." You don't think this is going to play in the general election? Oh, by the way, do we trust the guy that's got Iran battle plans? Is just you know fling, showing him off like it's you know some sort of like you know tchotchke? You know he's he's acting about those plans like the way somebody would if they got some memento from the White House. You know the thing of M and M's with the presidential seal. I, I think until somebody makes hay of it and really pushes it, you've seen Nikki Haley kind of a little bit. Uh, this was really inappropriate. Um, until somebody until somebody forces the issue, I think it's going to kind of hold hold flat. I think everyone, I think opinions are baked in at this point. I just try to keep an open mind about everybody, John. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, keep an open mind so so open that your brain falls out, as the as the old expression goes. Um, right. Dan, uh, you know, I don't I don't think I disagree with anything that John just said there, but I also think that part of this is them waiting to see how the base is going to react differently. And one thing that has happened is you've had, you know, multiple former cabinet members come forward and criticize Trump uh, in a way that they haven't before. Mike Pompeo probably being the more, you know, one of the more prominent ones. Uh, but obviously, you know, Bill Barr has been criticizing him over this for quite some time and uh, and not necessarily the people who, you know, can be easily shoved into that cuck rhino swamp creature territory that all Trump's defenders uh, put them in. Uh, when they criticize him in any way, 
Does that have any effect? And does it tell us anything if it doesn't have an effect? I highly doubt it has an effect. I agree with John that the, that the you know, Trump's numbers are basically frozen in amber at this point. Um, I think he can lose a, a little support. And, and I don't even think with John that he can gain that much support. I really do think he's probably maxed out. Um, but I think his numbers are baked in amber. And, you know, it's, it's a matter of the margins. Is it going to be 47% of the electorate or 53? Um, you know, uh, so I don't think it's going to have a major effect. I don't think his former cabinet officials uh, criticizing him are going to have a major effect either because that happened during the course of his administration. Don't forget. Right. I mean, people would leave and immediately, you know, write, you know, scathing memoirs or tell all it, you know, give tell all interviews to the Times. So I, I don't necessarily see that changing anything. I will say in, in, a, in a desperate attempt to offer an original thought on, on Donald Trump's, you know, uh, approval ratings. I would say that the biggest miscalculators here, I'm going to I'm going to sound for a minute like a great GOP partisan, which is I'm going to blame House Democrats and Senate Republicans. And the biggest miscalculations here were in January of 2020 by House Democrats and Senate Republicans. House Democrats, because the way they wrote the articles of impeachment were designed to get your Mike Gallagher's and your Chip Roy's of the world to not vote for uh, for the articles of impeachment. And that proved to be, you know, I think costly uh, from a signaling perspective. And then even more so, I think it's very clear, very clear as we, we as was reported at the time, and as we probably all know, that there were 67 votes in the Senate, at least 67 men, members of the U.S. Senate who didn't want to see Donald Trump run for president again. And they made the calculation very quickly. I think Josh Hawley was at the vanguard of this, but they made the calculation very quickly, including McConnell, that this problem would solve itself, that that the president's conduct on that day was determinative and, and put an end to his political career. And so they decided that they didn't have to risk angering the base to solve the problem by with the, the instrument the Constitution used to solve these kinds of problems. And here they are, you know, suffering for that lack of foresight and for that, you know, frankly, you know, cowardice. Um, so that's my, my attempt at an original thought. Well, I'll, I'll just give one swing at a, at a slight defense here. You know, the, I think that people underestimated the stupidity of Trump regarding these documents. Um, why they would do that, I'm not entirely sure. But it does seem to me that that a lot of them thought that, you know, when this story was initially reported, that the kind of documents that he had were the kind that a lot of former presidents have had. Um, you know, uh, the the Wall Street Journal, for instance, runs a piece by uh, a former lawyer for Judicial Watch who uh, lost a case trying to gather a series of tapes from throughout Bill Clinton's tenure that he had done. Uh, in interviews with an with an author for a, for a book that included a bunch of conversations about highly sensitive, not classified, but highly sensitive material that he was denied access to uh, under the Presidential Records Act uh, because they deemed that that stuff was was personal, uh, even though he was discussing, you know, in many ways things that don't seem personal at all, uh, you know, decisions about the war in Somalia and things like that. The flip side of that, though, I think, is that um, you know Trump has shown time and again. He's very blatant about all these things uh, and that, you know, he doesn't have any respect for these types of of uh, of rules and and guardrails. And, uh, you know, of course, it would turn out that he would have 
you know, material that that, you know, basically most Republicans, uh, certainly most elected Republicans would agree should be classified. And so a lot of his defenders have to fall back on this argument that, well, you know, what about Hillary and what about Joe Biden? And my answer to that is, well, Hillary should have been prosecuted and maybe they should prosecute yeah, absolutely. Biden. You know, absolutely, like, yeah. I, like it's not I agree with you. I accept your point. You know, that that was bad. They should have prosecuted her. I thought that was the whole point. Like, well, and, and let's up? be yeah, and let's be clear. I mean, I mean, the, the, the prosecution is incredibly problematic. Of course it is. Right. It's Trump law. It's all it's all those things. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to negate any of that stuff. It's absolutely a big, big problem. But it's also a big, big problem that you have a candidate who so stupidly and blatantly puts you in this position. You have an opportunity to get past them. I know we're supposed to be doing analysis, not wish casting. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 so, so I mean, there's plenty, plenty of, of, of blame to go around um, in, in this case. But, and by the way, I do think, I still think that any charges that come out of Georgia are actually the closest thing to a clean a clean offense that the sort of that, that gets around the common problem that the left has and institutional Democrats have whenever they go after Trump, which is that their guys did it first, oftentimes did it more blatantly, certainly did it more times. And the only real difference is that they, they uttered the right shibboleths and they, it was a little bit more high class when they did it. So I think the the Georgia stuff might be the only, the only thing that, 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 you know, breaks that, uh, trend and for that reason, I'm I'm actually pretty interested in seeing what happens if and when those charges drop because those I do think are categorical. I, I've I've one uh, John, I want to hear your response to that, but I have one more thought on this, which I, which I think is just so. I think that part of the problem with the Hillary experience uh, is from the perspective of media, the lack of visuals, meaning that. Her server, you know, that they got rid of, you know, in in her, you know, uh, in her house uh, was not something that really made, you know, th- there was no visual that came out of that that networks could return to. Same with the late stage. It's like it's not like there was some picture of Anthony Weiner looking at her emails on his laptop. You know, there, that visual didn't exist this time around. They've got all these visuals of boxes that like whatever's in them. Why are they there? You know, like, what, why, why are they sitting next to a, a shower curtain? You know, like, it's just, it's. Why does your bathroom visual. have a chandelier? Yeah, it's just, well, of course it has a chandelier. It's what the are finest. You, armor? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on the visual thing. Uh, but I, I think there's one other thing. And yes, I, I believe that, you know, with, with both Hillary Clinton um, and, you know, at some point, you know, potentially with, with President Biden, that, you know, they should be held responsible for that stuff but in both cases the materials that they had you know they weren't you know weren't from their time as commander-in-chief um i think when you're talking about the sensitivity of the kind of materials that are you know reputed that he had you know taken with him to mar-a-lago i mean look if if hillary had had uh, her server you know next to the atm at the neighborhood 7-eleven then yeah sure you know that there's there's something there but you know, setting aside the how well or not you know her server was locked down and again completely inappropriate for her to have something that was off the you know state department network um but you know at least it was in you know a a place where you know there weren't hundreds or thousands of people coming in you know in the course of a week um just sitting out there for the whole world to have 
So, but yeah, I think, I think you're, I think you're right um, about that and that it made it easier. And of course, you know, Trump and Trump drives, you know, headlines and eyeballs and attention in the same way that, you know, Howard Stern, you want to listen to what he says next, if you hate him or if you love him. I think that that's kind of part of the phenomenon that's, that's going on here. So I got to ask, do you, did, do any of you in your family have a, a, a boomer or pre-boomer hoarders uh, who, who had similar types of setups of just boxes that they were constantly rifling through uh, in, in your, in, in your family life? Is this an intervention about my 93 year old grandma? Ben? Because that's, that's completely out of, out of line. We've, we've told her about the issue. We've taken truck after truck to Goodwill. You know, the, the thing is, so I, I'll, I'll confess my, my grandfather uh, was, uh, he was not a hoarder, but he was a, you know, someone who just would hold on to tons and tons of records, um, which was both useful because he was, you know, sort of the family genealogist, you know, had all of this stuff, but it also was very daunting, uh, you know, in terms of going through everything like that when he passed away. And um, there's even actually a whole show devoted to this. I think it's on Peacock or something like that uh, with Amy Poehler. Um, the, uh, the, the, I believe it's called the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning or something like that, which is basically just the concept of you should go through all your stuff when you get old. So you're, you're, you know, the younger people don't have to. Um, I don't think that's what Trump was doing when he was asking for box after box and going through it. Um, but I do expect that at some point we will have a legal argument from his legal team, such as it is right now. His inconsistencies there, I think, are also at fault in terms of this ever reaching this point uh, in terms of negotiation with the government. But, you know, oh, he was just doing his due diligence. He was looking through and making sure that, you know, he had the pictures that he wanted to keep and the copies of the New York Times that he had circled. And uh, and we, you know, uh, it's it's just one thing where you can you have to kind of take everything one at a time and, and he's going to be super diligent about it and certainly had the interest of the American people at heart. Uh, John, do you have uh, do you have any other thoughts on Trump before we move on to other topics? I think the challenge with with this whole situation, and I think the, the question that people should be asking themselves is, yes, I, I think there are questions and legitimate questions about is he being treated fairly, you know, vis a vis other national figures who have been in similar circumstances. Um, and I think you can make that case, you know, you can make that case about the the, the prosecution in this instance. Um, but I, I think that what we've seen in the in in the indictment sort of does, call, you know, in both what he had and how he handled the situation. You know, I think it's, it makes you want to say maybe we need to go back and look at what everyone thought about the Mar-a-Lago raid, because you know, had that not happened, um, are we sure that those documents are ever recovered? Because it doesn't sound like that he was interested in handing them back over. And again, when you're yeah. talking about the kind of stuff that he had, um, maybe they could have just left it there and you have some sort of slap on the wrist or, or, or something like that. But I don't think you can assume that. I, I think I think, in fact, if the, if not for the raid, they probably never would have, you know, actually acquired this or maybe even known the extent of it. I mean, the one thing that we should keep in mind, uh, I was talking to a, a colleague at Spectator about this today, is the there is this kind of institutional brain drain that has happened for a certain class of, of character in American politics over the past uh, decade plus. And that is that if you go back to kind of the, you know, the eighties, the nineties, uh, the two, you know, the, the Bush Bush era and then Obama, 
you know, you had kind of this set of people who worked for often, you know, multiple presidents over different years, and they knew how to, when things were winding down, put things in the right box. And I think that that class of people, you know, often, you know, they were, they're sort of middle-aged women who work in, the, in this kind of branch of the workforce. Uh, I think a lot of them have kind of left and been replaced by more junior people who don't necessarily know what's going on. You know, I think that was actually a real problem in Obama's second term, uh, for instance, uh, in terms of the, some of the mistakes that they made and, and a lot more sloppiness that got in uh, to uh, to that uh, period of his presidency. Um, that's a different story. But it's one of these things that I definitely think was true of the Trump White House. Uh, and in the absence of those people, you know, a lot of these things can just fall through the cracks because they don't really know any better. They don't know that well, you, they you, need to and, and engage in that kind of, of uh, you know, curation. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a good point. I also think you, you have to think about it on two levels, not just what you're talking about, which is to say the quality of the appointee, especially the back half of the Trump term, he had a kind of accelerated version of the Obama phenomenon and really the two-term president phenomenon that you're talking about. Um, so it's not just the quality of person in the Trump staff, but Republican bureaucrats generally have a deficit when it comes to this stuff. We just don't have as many and as able of bureaucrats as the as, as the Democrats do, um, and that's a that's a huge problem. So I think uh, I think we've spent probably enough time on Trump. So let's maybe move to talking about uh, some of the other uh, candidates. But of course, we're talking about their reactions to Trump. And so you mentioned Nikki Haley, John. Uh, you know, uh, denigrating this. Chris Christie obviously did so as well in his town hall on CNN, which got very little attention uh, from my perspective uh, and uh, is another just example of, I think, why he's going to struggle to find the kind of momentum that he had, uh, you know, certainly 10 years ago, but uh, even in 2016. Uh, and then you had the response from, uh, you know, uh, the Vivek Ramaswamy who went down to Florida and uh, wore a truth hat uh, and uh, and uh, uh, committed to pardoning Trump uh, if elected president uh, and called on other candidates to do the same. Uh, they're all kind of circling and figuring out how their responses are going to be. I'm sure Mike Pence will seem uh, quite upset about this when he gets on uh, on a debate stage. Uh, and for Mike Pence, being quite upset means that he sort of lowers his voice and uh, speaks as if he's reading one of the more troubling verses that you find in the Old Testament. Um, the The thing that I think kind of looking at the rest of these folks is that none of this really seems to matter to their campaigns until they decide to John's earlier point that they're going to make it matter that a point of their contention will be uh we can't put this guy back into power or we or more more importantly I think in a in a primary we can't put this guy forward as the nominee he's going to be battling multiple legal cases all the way to trying to win the white house you know you can't in the in the words of of uh, the great uh, uh, speaker of truth, George Santos, Santos, um, I can chew and walk gum at the same time is not something that uh, that uh, all politicians are necessarily able to do. John, do you think that they'll try to do that, uh, or do you think that this is going to be just sort of a back off because we're too scared to interface with it? We don't know what his voters would do to us if we do. I think that's something Nate Cohn had today in, in one of the New York Times newsletters. Um, and I think, Ben, I think I'd be curious on your thoughts on this since you're, you're much closer to it than I am. But it was set aside the polling for now. We're, we're going to see where that goes. Where do conservative media elites 
land on this? At what point do they turn or not, um, you know, on Trump? And at that point, uh, you know, if, if those sort of validators, those people to help shape the opinions of, of a lot of Republican primary voters, if they start opening the door to like, hey, maybe this wasn't the best. Um, and then, you know, maybe that gives a little bit of oxygen to DeSantis, Christie, Pence, Haley, what have you. But uh, I, I think that the bigger issue here, and it, it's, I think it's, <laughs> I'm probably regret saying this, but I think it's getting late early that mm-hmm. if, if you don't believe that this is something, if you're not treating this as a baseball bat with barbed wire wrapped around it, or in Simpsons turns, a board with a nail through it, um, <laughs> to uh, to basically beat Trump like a cudgel. If, if if this is not part of your narrative of why you should be president and he shouldn't, I don't know what you're doing in this race at this point. Dan, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, this is like a, this is like where pundits you know who make predictions for a living go to die is talking about the you know the the potential of donald trump to make a comeback or to or to you know draw to the inside straight or whatever so i i mean i i say all these things with very low confidence but the main again i've been beating this drum on christie in particular for a while which is to say it's not necessarily that he's going after trump it's that he's not saying anything a not he's not saying anything new which is a problem that anyone who criticizes Trump is going to have. Everything Donald Trump will do that's illegal and wrong and stupid and indefensible, Donald Trump has done in the past already, right? There's no new thing he's going to do. So that's a big problem. But for Christie in particular, he's not, he's not just saying something that's been said before. He's saying something that's been said before in the pretty much the same way that sort of coastal you know, Democrats, you know, from, yep. from the tri-state area have, have said it. So, so again, that's a big problem for him. I, I think he is a little bit, he puts a little bit too much stock and a little bit too much faith in his Morris County, Jersey, you know, Sicilian uh, direct way of speaking, but he, he didn't sound any different than, you know, a random Cuomo. Yeah. Right. Or, a, or a, another outer borough Democrat congressman, they make the, the same rough arguments about about Trump. So the real challenge isn't isn't going to be to criticize him on this stuff. I don't think it'll do anything. If anything, you know, it's just going to sour potentially gettable Trump voters on Christie and on other candidates who do it. You have to take at least something closer to the DeSantis approach, which is, you know, people talk about how DeSantis criticizing Trump from the right. It's not necessarily a left right thing. But it's a it's a look. If you care about the Trump agenda, you need a better standard bearer than Donald Trump, because he has at every step of the way stepped on his own, let's just say, necktie. In, <laughs> right. In, 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 you know, in, in trying to execute that agenda. So so that's, I'm sure you it's the even, biggest necktie, Dan, <laughs> bigger, <laughs> bigger than you've ever seen. It's unbelievable. And, and, I don't even think DeSantis is doing this perfectly. Like, I think he's the closest to it, but that's the thing. So you got to, you got to say, look, if you want to build the wall, if you want to fill in the blank, you know, if you want all that stuff to happen, you've got, you've got no worse enemy than Donald Trump as he actually, actually, you know, carried out the office of president of the United States. So I want to get to DeSantis because you finally brought him up and we haven't really talked about him uh, on this episode yet. Uh, But before that, I just wanted to check 
the I wanted to check the date of the Simpsons reference that John just uh, made because it's so funny now to recall how old they are. That That's was a from boomer move. That is that is from 1991. H.W. Uh, Bush was president of the United States, um, and uh, it does have that follow-on great quote. Uh, that board with a nail on it may have defeated us, but the humans won't stop there. They'll make bigger boards and bigger nails, and soon they'll make a board with a nail so big it will destroy them all. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, don't blame me, pal. I voted for Kodos. <laughs> so the so the um the the question that I have about DeSantis is he seems to have in the last in the last week he's done sort of two things. Uh, one is he seems to have uh. You know, step back a little bit from kind of this uh, media splurge tour that kind of uh, took took him about a week. He's he's done a couple of other you know events, but it's been a little more quiet. He's uh, also you know passed a number of things on his uh, or uh, signed a number of things on his agenda um, in Florida. Uh, they released this DeSantis plan to quote uh, wage to uh, wage war on the weaponized DOJ and and a lengthy exclusive. Uh, to real clear politics, uh, which basically was touting the point that he's working with a lot of people uh, who have historically been quite pro-Trump, um, uh, including uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who obviously uh, has written extensively uh, in favor of Trump and in favor of the Trump voter, um, including you know multiple books and and a number of other people, basically uh, wanting to move the DOJ and the FBI um, uh, into kind of a pre-9/11. Uh, stance. By the way, the the real cherry on top that most of these Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill are talking about as a way of going after the FBI is they're going to take their building away, um, which is huge <laughs> um, in terms of the you know this long planned kind of reorganizational relocation, et cetera, with the FBI building. Which is uh, we'll see if they're able to to actually do that. But there, the point is, there's going to be consequences after this election. And DeSantis is basically saying, I'm going to do this in this responsible way involving a bunch of conservative academics who you know uh, and love from their time in conservative media and on Fox and, and you know elsewhere and for their books and et cetera. And I'm listening to all of them and I'm going to take their advice and put it into an organizational plan. Uh, okay, that's that's fine. I don't know how many people are going to read that plan or pay attention to that plan. And it's a lot longer of an explanation than just saying, I will drain the swamp. I will put Biden in jail. Uh, which is what I expect, you know, uh, Trump to be promising. What do you think about that approach uh, from DeSantis, uh, John? Do you think that it's the sort of thing that is going to be effective in terms of of delivering on what Dan just promised there about, you know, I'm I'm going to be the more effective version of the Trump agenda. I am the I am the uh, bringer of that uh, versus someone who you can't actually trust to get stuff done. I think it's an attempt to be Trumpism without Trump and. You know, if you if you want Trumpism, if you want the you know you want to go ultra MAGA or you know whatever the the latest you know White House phraseology is around that, why wouldn't you just go get the real thing? You know, why wouldn't you just vote for for the president? And again, it's I think some of this becomes entertaining. Like, I, I, look, I, I think it's the it's the best. You're choosing Bud Light over Bud Heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, 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 look, I think it's probably the best of 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 otherwise tepid series of responses. Um, but if I don't, are, are those voters gettable? I mean, are, are the people that think that there is, you know, sort of a deep state conspiracy? And again, like I think there's probably a little bit of that going on. Um, are those guys going to be happy with anyone other than Trump? Mm-hmm. Um, 
because you know, Trump's going to go back out and say, look, if you reelect me, I'm going to smash it all. And I'm not going to be, you know, I don't have another reelection to worry about, you know, until we, you know, probably have a, an amendment to let me run again for another four years. Um, <laughs> so I don't look, I, I don't, I don't think that Joe six pack cares about, you know, any of those, those names, you know, whether it's Victor Davis Hanson or whoever, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's style, it's content delivery, it's entertainment value. Um, and until, until DeSantis can articulate a theory of the case, of why he is going to deliver better stuff for Republicans. Um, if I'm him, I spend more time talking about, uh, you know, the, the legislation that's pending in California state legislature that would sort of, you know, challenge, um, you know, the, the, the parental rights of parents that don't affirm yeah. You know, the gender decision of a minor. If I'm Ron DeSantis, I bang on that. That's yeah. my wheelhouse, and that's a place where you can draw contrast with the with the president, who is, you know, his cultural views are, are more of the Manhattan left. So yeah. why play well, on? What I will say is, I'm not sure that Trump. You can say Trump is like quote unquote bad on that issue. He's clearly uncomfortable talking about it, very clearly. And um, uh, you know, it, and just to follow on your point, I think it, one of the things that is factoring into this is the strategy that Henry Olson outlined in this uh, piece that he wrote for the Washington Post this week, talking about how, you know, the situation is really flipped for Trump versus 2016. Um, that historically, the person who wins the most moderate slash centrist uh, voters uh, tends to become the Republican nominee. Uh, because they add enough conservatives or somewhat conservatives in order to achieve that. Um, and as odd is, as it is to say that like John McCain and Mitt Romney and Donald Trump had that same lane, uh, that is the lane that they had, which was they, they had the most uh, moderate sort of centrist voters ideologically. Um, and then they added in enough of the conservatives uh, with key issue points, including, you know, with Mitt uh, veering to the right on immigration uh, that, you know, you had people buy into it, and which is one of the reasons why, you know, Ann Coulter, pro Mitt Romney, pro, uh, pro uh, Donald Trump, uh, and now the most antagonistic, my favorite antagonist of Donald Trump. Every time her Substack shows up in my email, I love to read it. Um, and it's it's one of these things where this is a situation where this time around, DeSantis is actually pretty close to that lane. He has... He has a high number of these centrist or more moderate uh, uh, voters listing him as either their first or their second choice. Um, and obviously, you know, many of those voters are also kind of they're spread around. They're spread around to a lot of the non DeSantis and Trump folks. But one thing that he definitely does have is sort of the strategy that lays out in front, as, as Henry describes, where it's like he's basically banking on winning enough conservatives away from Trump in these early states that he can then become the, the only viable non-Trump uh, to uh, in these later states where that moderate vote can, you know, he is, he is assessing that basically they will, they will, uh, you know, uh, bite down hard and think of England, uh, but, but they will, you know, uh, come around to him uh, and that his position with the somewhat conservatives, uh, which is, you know, again, kind of odd given his depiction and uh, and, you know, the way that the media tries to, you know, proclaim him as being some crazy person. Um, it it does seem to be that his lane, you know, in, in a way is to win those somewhat conservative voters as opposed to 
tacking to the right of Trump. Um, I wonder, you know, Dan, what you thought of that theory, uh, because it's one that I've been kind of uh, you know, tossing around for a while uh, as being, you know, the difference between kind of a, a Ted Cruz and a DeSantis. It, does it have any truck? Well, I definitely think it's the case that a lot of people in the donor and sort of the mid-level donor class, let's call it a lot of bundler types who aren't necessarily millionaires or billionaires, but who are the sort of, um, you know, business core, uh, you know, sort of uh, white collar core of, of the Republican donor class and a lot of institutional conservatives in, in the sort of old consensus, the dead consensus, um, and a lot of average voters do think of DeSantis primarily in terms of his palatability to Trump voters, even if they themselves are not Trump voters, and do think of DeSantis in terms of the guy who can dislodge Trump. And so I, I think there is a kind of bank shot, a kind of ideological bank shot being and a calculation by a lot of his potential potential backers and his potential voters. I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out with the calendar. I do think he might have done it backwards if that was if that was DeSantis's intention and that's the way he's been calculating his his frankly bizarre um, governance strategy and campaign strategy over the last year really i mean yet yet a case and in many ways weirdly enough mirrors christie where he has this blockbuster first term and does just about everything right and gets a ton of organic and earned plaudits and respect both from good governance types and from conservative hardliners and then wins re-election walking away and just starts to get weird just gets weird and sort of scattershot quick and i i know more than one um Republican donor who got really, really spooked by the Disney stuff. And, 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 and even some of his biggest fans, you know, in the sort of um, small government conservative in, intelligentsia who really, really, really didn't like the Disney stuff and have just found his priorities, his, including his cultural war priorities, just oddly, his battles are oddly chosen. The means with which he conducts those battles um, are odd. I, I mean, I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to discount the extent to which a, a lot of that is media framing, but some of it's real. I mean, some of it is tactical. You know, it's not, it's not just all the evil lib media framing, you know, non-controversial things as controversial. Some of it is just dumb tactically. And so when I say he might have done it backwards, you know, now would be the time, I, I think you, you sort of earned your keep with potential Trump voters in that first term and you could, you could live and die on COVID and you could, you know, live and die on school curriculum, um, the, you know, th that sort of stuff. And you could do the traditional, you know, sort of pivot that most Republican nominees do in the general election. Well, you could do that in the primary because you're going to need those folks too, uh, to your point. And I think he's done it backwards. I mean, he's, he's coming out and he's actually bleeding. I think some of that goodwill that he has from good governance types and moderates in, in, in the pursuit of frankly, tactically questionable and kind of head scratching um, culture war fodder and kind of stunt politics. So I, I think if that's his strategy, he hasn't executed it very well. John, what do you think about that? 
I think to go back to, to Olson's piece, I, I do think that I think the one thing that Henry didn't really account for in that, and I know that we were we texted a little bit about it, is is candidate quality in those elections. I mean, look at look at 2008 and, you know, the the, the main opponent for for, you know, John McCain at that point was Mike Huckabee, who, you know, again, I think is a, a, a talented politician and you know charismatic, but it was not a you know, it was not a national figure, it was not somebody who. It was very nearly a meaning, killer. meaning that Giuliani and Romney had already kind of proven that they weren't going to land. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Um, that that wasn't it wasn't their time for one reason or another. You know, Romney, you know, governor of a you know, very blue state, and you know, again, not a typical pathway. Um, same thing. You look at all those cycles that you know, if if Ted Cruz is you know, I think for you know his virtues as a as a senator, I don't know, is like a great stump candidate and you know, not a great campaigner. And I think, I think that matters. I think being charismatic matters. I think, uh, you know, and again, I think that, I think, you, you know, you may end up seeing that, that uh, I can't remember who, who had written about this, but you know, does, does DeSantis become sort of cruisism without Cruz? Uh, I think all of these guys, they're worried they're, they're too much in their own thought pattern instead of, you know, the, the theory of the case needs to be, how do I get, Every Republican voter acknowledging it's kind of an impossible thing, but you know I think we've seen there's been polling that would suggest that that the very conservative voters are the ones that are, have actually been swingy, right? That those are the ones that the DeSantis's high watermark, you know, post the 22 reelect, um, you know, were those were people that had sort of drifted from Trump to DeSantis. Uh, now you know they've sort of drifted back, so they're they're swingable. I, I think that assuming that the moderates are with you. At the end, and if the, if the moderates are by and large, and, and I think this is probably right, but maybe painting with a broad brush, but they're they're moderates of probably two degree policy, but really style and decorum. The you know, I, you know, do I do I live in a sort of a blue suburb, and do I want my neighbors to like be able to like you know not you know ostracize me, but yeah, I'm still going to vote for the Republican. I, I think that you know, I think DeSantis is more appealing for them. I don't think that he is he's you know toxic in the same ways, which I think in some ways kind of, you know, Trump sort of inoculates that of like, hey, at least I'm not that guy for a general election. But again, it's it's the what's like, what, why is Ron DeSantis want to be president? I, you know, I think that the wokeness is, I don't think he's, he's talking about it in a very two dimensional way, as opposed to talking about how things have gotten out of hand, whether it's with the, you know, the uh, physician assistant in New York, you know, the city bike, Karen, who, you know, uh, was, you know, castigated for, uh, you know, claiming, you know, that she had rented a bike that some, you know, younger guys, you know, mm -hmm. claimed that they had and it became a racial incident. And it turned out she actually had rented the bike. I, I think that speaking to those things, speaking to the actual fears of everyday people, whether it's, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, go I, you know, that, but for the grace of God, this could happen to my kids' schools, you know, whether it was Loudoun County, you know, shuffling around, you know, mm -hmm. the student accused of rape. I think that the Disney thing was in, in the granular moment, I think was, you know, a shot across the bow of a bigger corporate life. And I think as, as the Bud Light thing that we talked about earlier is, but it's got to be about, you need to center voters on this as opposed to ideology. Ideology, I think one thing we took away from Trump in 2016 is kind of a dead letter for two thirds of Republican voters. So what is he going to deliver? What does Ron DeSantis mean for those people? And start focusing on that, or for or for any of them. But you're going to get all this stuff that we've heard for years of you know oh, timeless conservative principles, and oh we're going to have liberty. 
okay, well, how do I afford, you know, healthcare? How do I afford, you know, how do I make sure that my schools are better? How do I make sure that, you know, my kid is not going to, you know, have to have, you know, these sort of struggle sessions. And he needs to start speaking to that stuff, speaking to stuff that people can relate to, because, you know, most of us don't get to have a fight with Disney that's actually, you know, closer to a, a you know, a fair fight. So I think that, again, all this stuff of it, it, it's, it's becoming too online and it's mm-hmm. focused on lanes and it's got to be about why should you be president and why should people vote for you and how do you connect with them? And I think they're starting to lose sight of that. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of truth there, in, just in terms of the shift that both of you are recommending. Uh, we've been talking for quite a while now, so I, I think we can wrap things up. Uh, I do want to add one little uh, nugget that I found of interest um, to, uh, in in uh, the uh, Pew reported uh, that the uh, in their latest. Uh, surveys, uh, you know, uh, going back several years, they've been uh, tracking this. Um, the support for the Black Lives Matter movement has now fallen to its lowest point uh, since the death of George Floyd. Uh, it's now 51% support, 46% oppose. Um, the high point, of course, was around 70% uh, support for BLM. Uh, and And obviously, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think in terms of, you know, uh, talking about wokeness, a lot of us talk about it in terms of uh, the the sexual agenda side of things. But we shouldn't forget the kind of racial agenda side of things that I think is also driving a lot of uh, so much of the animosity. And one one area that I think is going to come up as an issue uh, that uh, that other candidates will lean into on uh, versus former President Trump is his uh, you know promises, his support for law and order. You know, and all the and all the tweets, uh, but obviously the lawlessness that happened in the wake of of that uh, disastrous uh, you know event, and also that disastrous summer um, that you know for many people was life changing uh, in a lot of ways. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, John, Dan, great to be with you both again. Thanks, Thanks Ben. Thanks.